Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. You are, as ever, with us at GCSE Revision Pod. I'm sat here in Mr. Forster's car. How are you? I'm pretty cold with the snow this morning. That's it. We're, we're braving the elements for you students to bring you a new type of podcast that we haven't actually done before because we are going to move on as a lot of email requests have come through and asked us to move on to power and conflict poetry, which is what we're going to do today. Speaking of that email address, where can students contact us, sir? Uh, EnglishRevisionPod at gmail.com. Fantastic. Get in touch. Lots of you have been getting in touch. Great to hear from you and we will try our best to cover the podcast that you are asking us to cover. Now, as we're moving on to poetry, it's important to kind of go over how we would write a poetry essay before we get into the specifics, I think, sir. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that students often make is they start with some wishy-washy introduction that just repeats the words of the question and doesn't really show they've understood it. Right, this is crucial, isn't it? Because they are going to be comparing two poems, one of them that's given to them by the exam board and the other one that they have to choose and really picking the right poem to compare it to and having an interesting thing to say about why they're comparing them. I mean, that's almost half the battle. Yeah. So before we get to talking about the question itself and the choices we made in which poem to choose to compare it with it, mm. um, I want to start maybe by talking about how we naturally do structure us. So I think it makes sense in your introduction to set out a really clear thesis statement. Okay. So what I mean by that is, what is your argument? Um, how do both poems link to the, the question? Mm. And what is both similar and what is different about the way in which they interact with that Why theme or that idea? Why have you put these two poems together yeah. and what's interesting about that? Not just that they're both similar, but yeah. what is it about them? And then I think generally in 45 minutes, you have about time for three main paragraphs. Yeah. But I think given it is a comparative task, every paragraph needs to be about both poems. Brilliant. So and you it... want to find kind of three ideas that connect these poems together, whether it's ideas, whether it's language, or whether it's structural features you can compare absolutely and to demonstrate that if you go to the bio of this podcast there is a link that you can click on or copy and paste into your browser if you're on spotify and there you will see that we've set out the handout as we've done with our other um podcast the handout is divided around these three ideas which we would use to structure the main part of our essay so I think hopefully that's enough of an overview yep. of how we're going to be doing this. Would you like to go through the questions, sir? Ooh, the only thing we didn't mention is conclusions. Right. In my conclusion, I'd like to come back to that thesis statement and see, is there anything that we can complicate about that thesis statement? Is that thesis that we set up in the introduction, is it right? What is mm. this kind of saying about power or conflict? So maybe we'll do that at the end of yeah, this podcast. We'll maybe we right will, end, we will nice have a little on-the-fly yeah. conclusion. So the question we're doing today um, is, compare the way the poets present ideas about conflict in exposure and one of the poem from Power and Conflict. Fantastic. So, normal formula. Students have been told, right, you're going to be talking about exposure. Here and, is exposure yeah, in front exposure of Exposure we've printed in your exam booklet, mm-hmm. but you're going to have to make a decision from the other 14 poems. Which one do you think compares really well in 
ideas about conflict. Absolutely. And the one I've chosen, sir, I, I hope you'll go with me on this, is bayonet charge. Yes, I think there was some really interesting comparison. Right, and I think the first thing to say is that while these poems both explore the theme of conflict, what's really interesting about them is that they show a completely different uh, experience of conflict. Even though both explore a soldier, both explore a soldier. Both explore the realities of war. This is no idealised fight, this is no discussion, this is no perfect world of honour and dignity. No, this is the brutal, gritty reality reality of war. But it's a very different brutal reality in the two poems. Well, that's what's so striking about it, isn't it? The difference between the two is that in exposure, um, we get this horrible sense from Wilfred Owen that he's slowly freezing to death. He came here to fight for his country. He was willing to give his life for his country in a fight. And yet he finds himself just attacked by the elements, not attacked by the enemy, but slowly, insidiously ground down by the cold. Talk us through that quick that word insidious for a moment. People might have seen the film. They may not know it's, what it means. It's a great horror film. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. But I think why that's such a good word to use from this impact is insidious is something which slowly harms you over a period of time. So rather than a brutal enemy charging at you, firing bullets at you, the cold is patient. The cold waits. The cold almost lazily attacks these men and is in some ways, therefore, a much more terrifying enemy than the, the true enemy. Yeah, I think what's interesting, of course, is bayonet charge is something quite different. Mm. It it similarly is, although Ted Hughes is writing much later, um, it it is still a poem about the First World War Mm -hmm. um, from the context. There's something nightmarish about it. Mm. It's engaging far more with the reality, that kind of adrenaline-filled moment of the attack itself, of going over the top to uh, attack the enemy gun positions. So to boil it down incredibly simply, you could say exposure is a poem about conflict where nothing is happening and bayonet charge is a poem about conflict where everything is happening where almost too much is happening for the speaker to even process what's happening to him and yet what both poets are doing though the immediate comparison we're going to make in our thesis statement is they're both engaging with the realities of war for a soldier for an individual Mm. the terrifying brutal harsh realities of war absolutely and that brings me nicely to the first topic sentence which we've put for you on the handout go and get it now if you haven't already what's wrong with you um and that topic sentence is while exposure looks at the slow, pointless death by the brought about by the cold, bayonet ch- explores the bayonet charge. Sorry, explores the brutal chaos of the fight. Now, within these paragraphs, you're then looking at language and structural features. So you've set out your topic sentence, which I've just given to you, which is on the handout, an example of a topic sentence you could use. Then. You want to, as with any literature essay, you want to then analyse how the language creates that effect. But one, one kind of quick thing to jump in there. Don't feel you have to analyse every single thing about the poem. It's far more, if you look at the mark scheme, the higher marks are for exploring ideas fully. So it's mm. much better to really develop your analysis of a few Im- bits of imagery, metaphors, similes, than it is to try and just mention lots of different things. You get far more yeah. marks for engaging with them in detail. Yes, uh, and the first quote that we pulled out from Exposure is this idea of the repeated line, but nothing happens. Yeah, it functions as a refrain, punctuating the poem, doesn't it? Mm, it keeps coming back to it. That's what you mean by refrain, sir? Yeah, so a refrain is like a chorus in a song. Nice. Something that, 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 that goes through. Do you want to sing one so we've got an example of how Definitely that would sound? Definitely not. You don't okay. want to hear my voice. <laughs> um, but it, it, it seems to encapsulate the message of the poem, which is mm. that this, this subverts our expectations for war. It's a war that is not against the enemy. They don't even see the enemy. They hear them in the distance, but nothing happens. Nothing happens. He keeps coming back to this idea. And this kind of brings us on to this second quotation, which we pulled out, which is that sudden successive flights of bullets streak the silence. Now, we've got some lovely sibilance in that line. 
Um, and I think the sibilance creates an almost onomatic representation of the bullets. Do you know what I mean by that, sir? Yeah, so it, the, the, there is this sense of the, the, the piercing the silence of the night. Um, and yet what's quite interesting is, that, is the point we want to pick out here is that, is that the irony is that they are less deadly than the air that shudders black with snow. So, so even though we have something like bullets, which we expect in war, even though we almost hear the bullets flying through the air in the words that he's used, these bullets are less deadly than the air yeah. and its black snow. And let's look at this personification of the air here, shuddering. Mm. That verb shudder the, has particular connotations of, of, of the air kind of dying, you know, painful, being tortured um, with snow. So, so it's interesting that the imagery used to describe the cold, to describe dying of exposure, which of mm. course means to die of the cold, right. um, is presented as being something that's more threatening, more dangerous perhaps than than the bullets. Than these bullets flying overhead. Now the final quotation that we would look at for exposure in this section of the essay, I think, is this wonderful metaphor, all their eyes are ice. Now I think, I don't know what you th- it think It comes about right this, in the final stanza. Right, and, and it's quite a haunting image because I think it almost sounds as if the cold is claiming them. You know, it, it made me think well, of Game well, of Thrones a little so, bit. So of course here literally what's being described is mm. the burying party burying someone who has died of exposure. Yeah. Their, their eyes are, are literally ice, they're frozen. They're frozen and they've been almost taken by nature. So all I think those three quotes together, look at them on the handout. I think if you put them together, you've got a really nice argument about how death is portrayed as both slow and kind of pointless in exposure. Yeah. And then this contrast with bayonet charge. So at this point in your paragraph, you would shift over to bayonet charge. You put a nice little linking sentence, not a new paragraph, but a linking sentence in the middle of your paragraph to go into bayonet charge. And I think you'd want to start with that very first sentence, this idea that suddenly he awoke and was running raw. Yeah, and I think if we look at that adverb suddenly, the, it, the, the poem begins without the, prep, without the naturalistic preparations you'd expect from a bayonet charge. There's there no build-up. There's no build-up. And, and therefore, this creates this... This entire poem seems like something out of a nightmare. Something... Uh, it, it builds perhaps, perhaps on the most, cliche, the, the most cliched ideas of nightmares. Mm. Your legs feeling heavy as you suddenly are awake and you're not sure where you're running to. Right. So war is presented here as something that's nightmarish, mm. but also something that is sudden, something that could not be more different from the that refrain of nothing happens in exposure. Absolutely. It's a strong contrast, I think. And again, the line that the hedge dazzled with rifle fire. Now, you've got this idea, I think, that he's dazzled by these lights he can see so many gunshots going off that it's almost as if he's confused everything around him is so intense everything is so terrible that he's losing his sense and the confusion is emphasized even more if we the specific technique that's being used here is synesthesia Ooh. and what this is is, is, is actually uh, this is when you're, you're you mix up your senses so for example if the the um the, the silence was dark right or um the um or the music was warm. The music was warm. Yeah, it's mm. a mixing up the senses. And what that kind of... Seems, so the idea of being dazzled with rifle fire, um, it, it's a, a way of describing the noise of the rifle is somehow confusing him. So mm. again, it's, 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 it's adding to the sense of the chaos and confusion of this charge. And I think another nice line which you can build into the concept of confusion is king, honour, human, dignity, etc. Now this is when the, the speaker, the soldier, is listing concepts that had encouraged him to fight in the first place. He had been willing to fight for his king. He'd been willing to fight for his honour, his human dignity. But yet, it finishes with this word, etc. What does that word mean? Yeah, so etc. just means all the, and the rest. So yeah. it, it subverts... Um, this idea that there is any honour or any meaning or any purpose in war because it engages with the reality just like exposure mm. that 
at a basic level, war is about individual soldiers dying. So mm. these things are described, these abstract nouns are described metaphorically as luxuries, that they dropped like luxuries in a yelling alarm. Mm, the confusion, the chaos of the battlefield makes these grand concepts, these things you believed in, they don't mean anything in that moment. So the way we can link this back to exposure is the idea that in both poems, they engage with the, the gap between our expectations for war and the reality. Whilst in exposure, the expectation is for this sudden adrenaline-filled charge and the reality is the slow death of freezing to death mm. by exposure. Um, in bayonet charge, what we see is the expectation is that, that war is something honourable, war is something that you do for king and country, something that you do out of your patriotic pride. But the reality, of course, is the, the, the vulnerability of an individual dying a painful death on the battlefield. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think if we then go into our second paragraph then so we've written our introduction which was what we talked about at the start our thesis, going over statement. The, our thesis statement going over these various different ideas we've written our first paragraph comparing the two ways that conflicts presented there i think i would then want to move the essay into the way that both poems actually do something quite similar and they explore the relationship between conflict and nature yeah so i think it's quite obvious we've already touched upon this for exposure the, the the let's look at kind of the personification of the weather itself um, the merciless, he writes in the first stanza, the merciless iced winds that knife us. Mm-hmm. Dawn amassing in her east, her melancholy army attacks once more in ranks of shivering grey. There's all these words that are from the semantic field of war and they're used to personify the weather as if the weather is an enemy soldier. Yeah, and, and of course the, the terrifying fact, of, the detail of that is that it's, it's a soldier you cannot fight. Right, there's it, nothing they can do. You can simply endure. I mean, it could be an interesting comparison in a different essay, actually, with Storm on the Island, but that's, mm. that's one for another day. Yes. Um, one thing that kind of adds to that disorientating sense of an enemy you can't see is the way Wilfred Owen uses rhyme. Mm. So Wilfred Owen is famous for using something called pararhyme. Um, and I've explained this in your key vocabulary on the sheet. But a pararhyme is a type of rhyme where you get the same consonants, so the same, um, but a different vowel sound. So it almost rhymes, but it doesn't qu- quite. Um, let's look at an example that we've just looked at here. He talks about the ice east winds that knife us. Right. And then he talks then uh, later on in that stanza about sentries being nervous. So knife us becomes nervous, mm. silent becomes salient. What was the name of that rhyme? Um, it's called pararhyme. Oh, okay, and fantastic. The effect of this is that it adds to this unsettling sense that the enemy isn't who we think it is. Nothing quite, everything's a bit uncomfortable. So we talk about the structure here mirroring the discomfort the soldiers are feeling in the cold, icy weather. So let me see if I've got this right. In the same way that the rhyme itself doesn't quite work, he's grappling with this concept that doesn't quite work, the idea that the true enemy is not this thing that they believe would be the enemy. That's a lovely way of putting it. And that's a a really high-level technique, is linking the structure of the poem to the language, to the meaning. Because Mm. often students make the mistake of saying, oh, there's lots of caesuras here. But they don't actually link it to meaning. No, they just spot it. They they notice the feature, but they don't do anything with it. I think we could then move that paragraph on to bayonet charge, perhaps, because we've got this nice bit here where... Uh, the slot slashed furrows threw Say up that a again. yellow. The, <laughs> the slot slashed furrows threw up a yellow hair that rolled like a flame. That <laughs> difficult to do. Anyway, but this particular the shot like, slashed furrows. That's the that's what I meant. I do apologise, <laughs> listeners. Um, this line here, right? I think what we've got is the use of an animal to represent the absolute terror. So the nature in the poem is 
symbolising the absolute terror that the soldier himself is feeling at this moment in time. Yeah, and again, the comparison to make with exposure is that, again, nature here is being used symbolically to highlight the vulnerability of the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So the, the hair here, I, again, it, this doesn't seem like a naturalistic detail. Like the, the nightmarish sense of the first stanza of bayonet charge, the idea of him seeing a hair in the middle of the battlefield in this threshing circle, its mouth wide open, its eyes standing out, mm. um, it seems this grotesque image out of a nightmare, this you know, eviscerated hair writhing in pain as a it hair dies. being a big rabbit of yeah course, like a, should, a big uh, quick bunny rabbit we should say but there's obviously symbolically there's a suggestion here of of his own vulnerability that this hair seems to prefigure the fate of the soldier he too will soon be this animalistic figure writhing about in death mm. and so that's one way in which bayonet charge links nature and conflict which i think is quite um quite striking the other one that i pulled out was this idea about the patriotic tear that brimmed in his eye sweating like molten iron from the center of his chest so we get this metaphor here that a tear one of perhaps you could argue one of the most natural human things you know to cry incredibly natural human things i mean i I see you often shedding a tear over various different things you know who's um who's been evicted from the big brother house that week and And that kind of thing how how little are your elevens are revising that kind of thing yeah and when I, i always think it's incredibly natural to cry you know it's a natural thing but in this case he the tear is becoming like molten iron so the natural thing is becoming man-made, is becoming another element of the war. And also it's becoming painful because in, in both poems what we're seeing is the, the imagery is being used to emphasise the physical pain that yeah. they're going through. So, and, and the idea of um, the molten iron coming from the centre of his chest, so instead of a patriotic tear he's got, he's sweating and that chest is, that, that sweat is burning him. Mm. Um, it transforms this, this actual metaphor we often use. We associate patriotism with like a burning heart, a, a burning patriotism. Right. But here, this, uh, you know, uh, Ted Hughes makes it makes it literal it's something patriotism here is something that's hurting him Mm. because he's charging towards his death and in that sense we've i think all of those quotations i mean you might not have time to be fair in an essay to talk about everything we've put on the sheet i think we've tried to give you a range of different things that you could potentially use and remember as we said it's much better to mention fewer quotations but really engage with them in a detailed way and so anything in that last bit could help you with that idea of linking nature and conflict together but you might not use all of them now if you go on to the final um paragraph idea that we've come up with we've said that while exposure exposure shows how conflict seems to be never-ending bayonet charge explores conflict's ability to freeze one moment and make it seem to last forever so i think what we were trying to say here was that both poems play around with time in order to highlight the brutal reality of war. So if we look firstly kind of at exposure, mm-hmm. um, we see, uh, well, talk me through which, which quotation you'd pick. Well, I think I'd start off with God's invincible, for God's invincible spring, our love is made afraid. So I think you've got this nice quotation here where he's basically saying that the spring, you know, this thing that's always meant to come there, what's, what comforts us in winter is the knowledge that the spring will come again during the darkest times the light will come again the spring will come again but this winter seems so savage so brutal that it almost seems never ending and therefore for god's invincible spring our love is made afraid now on one sense that could mean that he worries that he won't live to spring but you could read a bit deeper and make it seem that perhaps this experience is so terrible that they feel that spring will never come again this is the same idea that wilfred actually uses in another poem he writes a bit of an ao3 point um futility he used the same kind of imagery of, 
of, of this kind of stasis of this world of being stuck of being trapped in this in this terrible never ending and again you come back to that repetition of but nothing happens you've also got the idea where they say for love of god seems dying now i think the idea of god your love for god which would have been a huge deal for these soldiers back then the idea of that love dying I think you could use that to highlight the fact that the everlasting nature, the fact that this conflict seems to go on forever, is challenging even their strongest beliefs. Yeah. I think, let's move on to Bayonet Charge for an interesting comparison here, because what's interesting about Bayonet Charge is how in the confusion, the chaos, the bewilderment of the charge, um, there is a moment in the second stanza where um, Hughes writes, in bewilderment then, he almost stopped. In what cold clockwork of the stars and the nations was he the hand pointing that second? It's a complicated metaphor, that one. I mean, it seems complicated, but we need to unpack this metaphor on a couple of levels. I mean, the first one, of course, this is a metaphor that emphasises his lack of agency, his lack of power. So if if fate here is, is metaphorically described as something clockwork, he is a tiny cog in something much bigger than him. He is insignificant, and mm. he's caught up in this momentum of this clockwork mechanism that he cannot escape. And if the idea of him as a second hand, the hand pointing the second, suggests his insignificance in the grand scheme of time, in the grand mm. scheme of the universe, time seems to pause, and and he's and he realizes his own insignificance and yet paradoxically he is still at the center of that moment is that too complex of an idea to bring in do you think yeah i certainly can evaluate that idea of his insignificance that he is still what's interesting is that he's at the center of this moment and this is home is about him it's fascinating isn't it we're just trying to carry on with this podcast while rude other members of staff are trying to distract us very difficult conditions to work under so then we get to this point where it says his foot hung like statutory in mid-stride and i think this is the point where he most employs this idea of time freezing would you say yeah the idea that he becomes almost petrified and of course this is taking petrification to its most most literal meaning i mean being turned into stone you love it when a word is taken to its most literal meaning so the idea of that he's petrified he's so scared that he's he's turned to stone Uh, is is playing upon this idea that goes all the way back to the greek myth of medusa the idea that actually that terror here makes him so aware of how 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 insignificant how tiny he is how vulnerable he is that everything else seems to disappear fantastic i think that pretty much covers the essay would you say yeah i guess we'd always want to finish our essay by coming back to i mean one thing to mention we perhaps haven't done as many comparisons in this as we could have done no um and that's something you constantly want to be having these subordinate clauses saying unlike bayonet charge which does this in exposure you see this yes and we'll talk more in future episodes about perhaps a bit more explicitly about that Mm. but we want to finish by coming back to that thesis so our thesis was of course that um they're both engaging with the reality of war but what they're showing is actually quite different realities yeah a very different realities they're both they're both suffering greatly they're both in incredible danger but one is getting perhaps the the adrenalized terrifying moment of near death when you're in the war that you perhaps would imagine yourself to be and the other is in the just as brutal but perhaps surprising suffering brought on by the conditions and the the lack of any real conflict and i suppose the ultimate thing we can say is that what both poets are really showing us is the is just how awful a conflict really yeah, is yeah it does not sound it does not sound nice at all does it all right i think that about covers these two poems we um would like to thank you very much for joining us today as ever sir they can contact us at um english revision pod at gmail.com fantastic get your emails in and we look forward to seeing you next time on gcse revision pod